0: Hello there, servus. My name is Sean Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday in detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. Now what do I have for you today? Well today we're gonna to talk about um Afghanistan and how it displays the silliness of our politicians here in the United States and a couple other countries and the implications of Nord Stream 2 as well as the world's geopolitics coming back into motion. All that and more, coming up. All right, let's get into the rapid-fire news. So... America, last week, has mourned the anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. Um, pretty, pretty, uh, chilling videos when you watch the planes hit the towers. Uh, I remember back when I was a sophomore, my teacher, we were in a current events class, he showed us a video of, uh, 9-11. It was pretty, uh... What can you say? It's pretty chilling to watch. I mean, I know I said that, but it's the best word I have to describe it, especially since I wasn't a witness. I was alive, just barely. I was only a couple months old. But, uh, definitely not a fun thing to watch. Uh, Meanwhile, Israel has started employing armed robots to patrol their border, uh, and this comes amid continuing airstrikes in Gaza. In other news, we have a prison in Nigeria that was attacked, resulting in 240 prisoners escaping. And in better news in Nigeria, the Nigerian government rescued around 70 abducted students. Uh, And my side note here is that I think Nigeria is in a civil war. That's... Sort of, a, that's one of the speculations I have. Uh, not as clear-cut as, say, the situation in Ethiopia with the Tigray Rebellion. But it definitely seems like they have lots of opposing factions who are in open conflict with one another. And so it would be more of a, what, a Spanish Civil War type situation? Rather than, say, an American Civil War type situation? But I, I think they just might be in a civil war. Who knows? The UK uh wants Iran to return to the nuclear deal. Uh they want them to return to the talks, because Iran the, the, the talks have basically broken down. Uh America's uh disengaged and um, Iran has disengaged as well. Well, at least if if we look at actions, the two have disengaged, well America will or our officials will say that they want to reach a deal. And Iran will say the same, but if we look at the actions of the two countries They've pretty much disengaged. Uh, So there's the UK and Iran. And back in Africa, a meningitis outbreak in Congo has killed 129 people. And in Central Asia, we have Russia, who has sent a load of military equipment, including 12 armored vehicles, to Tajikistan. Now, we talked about... ...what it means when another country is policing your border for you. we It starts with an A and ends with an X. And it rhymes with Bannix. But, um, here we have it. Russia's really, really solidifying their hold over Central Asia. And I said that they would digest this really large acquisition. And here they are. They're sending more equipment to Tajikistan which has the side effect of making them dependent on Russian equipment. The more Russian equipment they use, the more Russian equipment they're going to be dependent on. So there's a, there's a little side uh, benefit for Russia and a side detriment for Tajikistan, if they view it as a detriment. I mean, it's, if they want to be dependent, then, yeah, who am I to stop them? But the dependency is there. And the big winner, once again, from this conflict, is Russia, who didn't even fight in Afghanistan. Um, But they're now digesting Central Asia, and that means with the Caucasus down, with Central Asia down, both of them are on lockdown, and they have the Crimea, there's only one direction left for them to go, and that's into Eastern Europe. I believe I'll get into that. I believe, yes, I'll I'll be getting into that in uh, just a little bit. But, um, things might start heating up in the near future. Not the not-too-distant future, certainly. But, uh, and while we're still talking Russia, Russia and Belarus have agreed to further integrate the two countries uh, through a united oil market, uh, an oil and gas market, so, basically, Russia is. Annexing the Belarusian market because Russia's the dominant oil and natural gas producer in this partnership. So, unified oil and gas market? Uh, Welcome to Russia, Belarus. Welcome back, I should say. So, a unified oil and gas market. And they're going to be further integrating their economic links. uh, Which means greater dependency on Russia. And to the point where we're getting to the point where Belarus is effectively becoming a part of russia they have a unified oil and gas market or at least they will in the very very near future so what other markets are they going to have unified in the near future because it seems to me like the union state is being progressed further and further even if not in name they're getting more and more integrated but at a certain point you become one in the same now don't you so the union state of belarus and russia is in full swing just coming in bite-sized pieces and russia will once again be the big winner not to say that belarus is going to be a big loser but you know sovereignty you're basically being annexed by the bigger partner here so where does that lead for belarus maybe it leads to an increase in the quality of life for their citizens maybe it leads to a decrease we'll really have to see but i don't imagine they'd be going through with this if they thought it would be bad for them so we'll see where all this goes but now that i've that i've completed the rapid fire news it's actually rapid fire this time we're going to get into um afghanistan but in sort of a different way than we usually talk about afghanistan but you'll you'll see in just a moment all right, and we're back to talk about Afghanistan, but like I said a bit earlier, in a bit of a different way. Um, and the way that I'm speaking is that it's not we're not necessarily talking about Afghanistan itself, but sort of the controversy surrounding it, if you want to call it that. I'd say uh the politics surrounding it, there that's I guess that's the better word. And how it's sort of a look in the mirror. Uh, The situation has exposed people on our side of this conflict, and I'll just get into it so you see what I mean. The situation with Afghanistan has really, like I said, exposed people on this side, and for me personally, it's sort of exposed just sort of how silly a lot of these politicians are, particularly the ones in more Western countries. And what I mean by that is that we have officials from the UN to America, from Britain, from Australia, all, and even Indonesia, who are all talking about how the Taliban needs a more inclusive government. They're talking about how the Taliban needs to respect women's rights and how the Taliban must protect human rights and protect environmental and a whole lot of things. That They're basically trying to mandate from the bench that the Taliban does. And while all of those sound well and dandy, let's let us not forget who we're talking about. The Taliban, the Taliban, the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, the Taliban. They fundamentally do not believe in like half of that stuff. We know this. We know they don't. They fundamentally do not believe in, like, half of that stuff. And for the half of that they do believe in, they have radically different definitions and perspectives on what those terms even mean. We say respect women's rights. They say, yes, the women's right to bear children and stay in the home and be well wrapped up. And not be exposing themselves to other men. That, that's how they view women's rights. Women's right to purity from other men. from who, who aren't their husband. That, that's their definition. I mean. talk talking about human rights. Well yeah. The, the human right to own your own country. And not have it run by outsiders. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Human right. The very very different outlook on these terms assuming they even believe in them all right so just when we talk about dealing with a different culture we have to understand that that means that they do not believe in some of the things that we might believe in and for the things that they do believe in that are that sound similar on paper they might have a completely different perspective on it which is why they're a different culture. And the way I see it, they have their own country, so they can do what they want. And, well, I'm sure the, the, the women there who are currently being forced to cover up are probably very, very in disagreement to that statement. And I can bet you about 90% of the population of my own country are going to be in great disagreement with my, st- my me just saying that. That's the truth. It's their country, not ours. And so, uh, it's so silly to me. Again, this is personal. It's silly to me watching these officials in all these countries try to dictate to the Taliban what the Taliban's going to do. But here's the thing. If they wanted their country run the way that we'd want to run it, then they would have. They wouldn't have fought us for twenty years. They wouldn't have fought us. They would have. They would have just said, "Oh wow, this is great. Let's let's keep it the way it is. Yeah, mm-hmm. this is exact. This is how we like it. We we like what you've done. We're gonna keep it right. There. That's not what they did. They fought us tooth and nail for twenty years. They kept the fight going for twenty years, fighting against the U.S. military for twenty years. And now the U.S. military is gone and they have their country back. That's another thing a lot of people pretend isn't the case. Uh, when they talk about Afghanistan, they talk about we're bringing freedom to Afghanistan. Well, this is their country. The, the Taliban is not a foreign force. This is They were the government. They are the government. And they're back in charge. They've retaken their country. But a lot of the talk about the situation... Paints the image that the Taliban is some outside force when they're not. But that's that's me being a stickler for the specifics on this issue. But um, I, I, I'll just come on back to these Western officials who are in this who are doing this weird, very weird attempt, and they've been doing it since the fall of Kabul, um, or I should say the retaking of Kabul. They've been doing this ever since Kabul. Uh, fell back into the hands of the Taliban. And they're making... And they're doing this in a a weird attempt to save face. That's the sort of best way I can put it. This attempt at saving face. Uh, And they've resorted, in this attempt to save face, to just telling the Taliban, oh, you need to do this. You have to do this. Just telling them what they need to do. But I, again, um, you know, my, my little peculiar perspective on these things... I'm just sitting here, like, why would the Taliban go along with this? Why would they go along with any of that? Why would the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, at this point in the game, care what we have to say? Why would they care? They were quite literally shooting at us just a few weeks ago. And they've been shooting at us again for 20 years, but now these officials are acting like the Taliban needs their approval to gain legitimacy in Afghanistan, the country they just defeated us in and regained control over that country. I say no. The Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan doesn't want or need our approval, and they certainly do not need it for the purposes of legitimacy within Afghanistan. They 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 really don't. I mean, just look at them. They they've pretty they've very strongly asserted their control over the country. There's barely any meaningful resistance against them at this point. If there if there was going to be resistance, it would have happened while the Islamic Republic still had an army, uh, but the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan surrendered, effectively. they Some of them fought till the last bullet and then surrendered. Some of them just surrendered on site. Some of them defected to the Taliban. And now the Taliban has a whole bunch of shiny new military equipment that they're going to use to enforce their legitimacy that they already have. Uh, the, the, the resistance that are our officials are focusing on are really sort of pockets, just pockets of resistance over key things that we would care about or would catch our attention. But truth be told, the Taliban has a firm grip over most of the country at this point. And that's the truth. So in light of that, you can see why I... Well, I've looked at these sorts of comments that are being made, and I call them silly. Very, very silly. Now, perhaps you have a different take on it all, but that's the way I see it. And really, I see it as being a waste of time, because these they're not going to change anything. The Taliban's not going to change, because you said they have to respect the rights of insert group here. They're just going to go along doing what what they want to do. And that's exactly what they've done. That's exactly what they're doing now. And that's exactly what they're going to continue to do. So I see it as ultimately being an exercise in futility. Because nothing's going to come from this. They, uh, again, even if they did need legitimacy, they still don't need it from the people criticizing them right now. They would need it from the people around them. That'd be Iran, Pakistan, Russia, China, Central Asia, the Middle East, maybe India. They already have that, basically. Certainly from Russia, China, and Iran, and Pakistan. And that's truthfully all they need. And courtesy of Russia's acquisition of the entirety of Central Asia... They don't even have to negotiate with the Central Asian republics ind- directly. They have the indirect recognition via Russia, who has indirect control over all of Central Asia by control of their borders. The ship has sailed. The The cook... The, sh- the ship has sailed. What more can you say? the The, the turkey has been cooked. So to speak. And there's nothing more than you can. There's, there's really nothing more to it. So I'll just leave that there. Just going to leave that on the table. You can make of it what you will. That is how I see it. But another thing that I'd like to talk about here, and this one spiraled into a much larger segment than I expected it to be, is Nord Stream 2. So, what about Nord Stream 2? Um, uh, it's a pipeline and it's finished. It is now finished. Last week, the natural gas pipeline that is under the alias of Nord Stream 2 it goes directly between Russia and Germany running under the Baltic Sea. It has finished its construction. This project after a long process of building being sanctioned, then unsanctioned, which was followed then by obstacles, lobbying and political hurdles, has survived. It has survived under all those complications and it is now complete. It is currently, as far as I'm aware, undergoing sorts of final tests to make sure that it's sturdy and will get the gas to where it needs to be without major leakage Um, and it is currently slated to be operational by mid-October. So now that we have a new reality to deal with, some facts on the ground is my my new favorite term right now, let's do what we do best and speculate on its implications. Now, first I'd like to go over is the pipeline is underwater and it runs directly from russia to germany and that means no transit states no other country comes between russia and germany with regards to this pipeline in peacetime I i don't think it would be too difficult for a navy to come along and wreck that but as far as peacetime goes uh regarding everyone who has a navy anyway it's untouchable And it's a direct line, which means no interruptions. Pivoting from this is another implication, which is that Russia now has an alternative pipeline that it can use to securely get its natural gas to energy markets in Europe, where previously Ukraine held significant sway over whether that could happen or not. Because Ukraine is where the other major pipeline is. I believe there's one that goes through the Baltic countries as well. And that would probably be Nord Stream 1. But um, Russia now has an alternative to the pipeline in Ukraine. And this alternative being available. If things were to say heat up in eastern Ukraine. Russia... By diverting energy resources through this new pipeline would suffer minimal damage to its ability to export energy to Europe. Germany wouldn't say anything about things heating up in Ukraine. They're getting gas from Russia and they don't have to worry about the Ukrainians cutting the line out of desperation or Russia turning off the taps to punish Ukraine for doing something that Russia doesn't like. And Russia doesn't have to worry about the new pipeline getting hurt because Ukraine cannot reach the Baltic Sea. And it currently can't reach the pipeline that has laid underneath the Baltic Sea. They're just not going to be able to reach it. It's out of Ukraine's reach. Now, I said that with Central Asia now on lockdown... In a similar fashion to how Russia put the Caucasus on lockdown, Russia would take a while, a bit longer, to digest this acquisition. I'd say it would be a bit longer than the Caucasus because of just how much the Russians have acquired. Look at how big Central Asia is and compare it to the size of the Caucasus, uh, which is collectively is Armenia, Georgia, and Azerbaijan, and you you can see why it would be you take a little bit longer to secure your hold over such a much larger acquisition. You're talking about the border patrol. That's a much larger border that the Russian troops are being stationed along. So it's going to take them a while to settle in and get their bearings. Um, but, But then I also said Russia would probably make moves on the former Soviet states in Eastern Europe, once it had digested Central Asia enough. And I said that Ukraine would likely be at the top of that list. So come November, when Nord Stream 2, the pipeline, will have been operational for a couple weeks, we will then have to be on the lookout for the possibility that actions will be taken to justify uh, a swift defeat of the Ukrainian resistance. We'll have to be on the lookout for any action or event that may happen that will be used as justification for Russia to either move in or to put more quote-unquote support behind the rebels in the Donbass region and the rebels... With that extra support, that extra oomph and firepower could shatter what's left of the Ukrainian army. Especially if they have Russian air cover and anti-air cover. Uh, Which they already have the anti-air cover, so the, the Ukrainian air force doesn't exist at this point. So you combine total air superiority with better equipped and better armed land units and... A couple hundred thousand missing quote-unquote missing russian troops who just so happened to volunteer for the armies in the donbass we could see ukraine lose and we could see ukraine lose very very badly or perhaps we might even see direct russian intervention we we just we don't know how exactly this is going to play out my theory and my working theory, which so far has proven relatively true, is that the Russians will just use the Ukrainians, the Donbass and republics, to fight that war for them so that it doesn't, so that they have plausible deniability. They can say it wasn't us, it was them. And we just, we we happened to sell them arms. Hey, you sell weapons and arms to factions around the world of your choice. And they'd be saying this to, say, France, America, Britain, what, what have you. We didn't fight this war, they did. And we just helped them. So that's that's what I think is how this is going to go down. Um, but I then also believe that Luhansk and Donetsk, Those two republics that we're talking about in eastern Ukraine, after winning with significant support from Russia, will collectively hold all of Ukraine between the two, and they will then try for membership within the Russian Federation. So think of how Texas became a part of the United States after they beat Mexico in a war. It'd be like that except imagine that Texas beat Mexico so badly that they annexed all of Mexico and then applied for statehood in the United States. That's sort of the picture we're looking at here. So with that, who could stop it? Who would be able to stop you? You're going to interfere with these sovereign countries who just so happen to want to be a part of us? Who do you think you are? Maybe we need to send peacekeepers to the borders to make sure that no one interferes with the sovereignty of Luhansk and Donetsk and at that point Ukraine is Russia's at that point so that's that's the speculation I have as to how it all plays out there's sort of a rough guideline of where how I think it's going to go down but it could go down in different ways but I still believe that ultimately it ends with Russia gaining control over Ukraine again. Now, that would be the first official change of the region's borders, the Ukraine falling to these two republics. That would be the first official change to the borders because the borders of the world are pretty inaccurate right now. France holds like half of West Africa. China's colonizing East Africa. Um, Turkey is effectively in Libya to the point where you could call Libya a province, Northern Cyprus isn't really an independent country, it's part of Turkey. Uh, Central Asia and the Caucasus, but we'll, we'll just use the Caucasus for this example. The Caucasus belong to Russia right now, and nobody else. They're just autonomous zones within Russia at this point. Crimea is a part of Russia, but people don't really want to recognize it as being a part of Russia. But as the Crimean incident earlier this summer showed us where a British destroyer sailed past Sevastopol Crimea is very much Russian right now but no changes to the map have been made if Ukraine loses to these two republics that'll force the issue and you'll have an official change to the maps Um, probably Russia will be have recognition of its sovereignty over Crimea um, but Sanctions, militarizations, reproachments, detents, and the recognition of Russian sovereignty over Crimea would likely follow this um, forcing of the hand for people to recognize the changes in Eastern Europe rather than pretend that they don't exist. And that would further along talks of a union state between Russia and Belarus. Look at how dangerous your neighborhood is, Belarus. Maybe we need even more integration so we can properly protect you from those Ukrainian uh, radical militants who want who want an independent Ukraine again. You don't want that, Belarus. You don't want them wandering over the border. You don't want those refugees. You don't want those. Maybe maybe you need us. To police your border for you. We can we can send you a couple thousand troops. We can we did it for Armenia, Azerbaijan, Tajikistan, Uzbek. We did it for all of them. We can do it for our friend Belarus. And we can see already that the Union State is being pushed further and further along, a united oil and gas market, further economic integration. How far do you have to go with integration before you become one and the same? If you have a unified market, you have a unified economy, and the other guy is policing your borders, Where's where, where does one end and the other begin? Perhaps you just are one and the same in the not-too-distant future. The Union State will be pushed should Ukraine fall, and by should I mean when Ukraine falls, just a matter of how. Um, now, I know this seems like a stretch when we're talking about this one pipeline, Nord Stream 2, which is being built. Uh, but, well, not being built. It's been built. But within the context of what we've witnessed, just what we've witnessed over the last year, and the actions Russia's is taking now, it doesn't seem too outlandish to be to start thinking about. And so, you know, me, I'm thinking about it already. But that's uh that's one of the key takeaways from Nord Stream 2's completion that I have. But another takeaway I have is the status of the world's geopolitics and how they've changed. And well, uh, let me let me get myself back together again uh yes so the, the second major takeaway that i have is that the completion of the pipeline has sent a signal so to speak that the geopolitics of europe and i guess by extension the world but specifically europe the geopolitics there are unfreezing and let me explain the attempts by the United States to keep Nord Stream 2 from being built was in essence America attempting to keep the countries of Europe cemented into the post-Cold War status quo. And the failure of this attempt is the signal that I speak of. Now the pieces of the European chess board are from this point forward going to be in motion. And for those who still don't know what I mean, uh, I said this, oh goodness, I don't even know how many episodes ago, but basically what I had said way back uh, was that America, post-World War II, effectively used its power and influence to freeze global geopolitics into place. No more conquests, no more uh, war, no more invasions, uh, especially between major and developed powers. Everybody's borders were frozen in place. Your, the quality of your military suddenly didn't mean as much because you weren't allowed to use it. And so you had decades of economic development and economic dynamism with relatively minimal uh, investment in the military. Uh, with the exception of the United States and the Soviet Union. So you had the borders... And that's what I mean by the geopolitics. You have the borders and the alliances frozen into place post-World War II. And post-Cold War, there was no opposition to that to try to force change in this or that region. So the borders and the alliances continued to stay in place after the fall of the Soviet Union. The United States kept everything frozen, and this freezing can best be seen in places like Korea, where you have North and South Korea. The the war hasn't ended, but they're just there, living next to each other, despite being in a state of war. You have Europe. Anybody who knows anything about European history knows that that map should have changed a million times by now, by some power invading its neighbor, being torn down by a coalition... And then some new guy rising up, who then has to be torn down by another coalition. And then another, and again, and again, and again, and then some new country pops up that didn't exist before, and a country that existed for a while stops existing. Europe, historically speaking, changes a lot. Um, for being a relatively small place on the globe, it changes a lot, and those changes have large implications. Um, But since World War II And especially since the Cold War's end When the Iron Curtain was lifted Germany reunified And the Eastern Bloc countries were Given actual independence Europe has been frozen in place You can also look at Taiwan Taiwan is In a state of war Between them and China uh, But yet no one's shooting at each other just yet. Or at least they've stopped for now. And all these places in a normal geopolitical environment would have seen significant changes. And I'll, I'll just really reiterate that especially since the end of the Cold War. Uh, they would have seen significant changes in a normal geopolitical environment. But these frozen conflicts uh, have not seen significant changes. In a normal world, they would have been resolved, either by a formal peace agreement that actually ends the hostilities, or by one side winning and annexing all or parts of the other side. Think Korea, think Taiwan, or think Vietnam. Vietnam ended normally, despite uh, in the environment it was in, one side just won out. Korea and Taiwan, which Taiwan is really the Chinese Civil War, those two conflicts should have ended a long time ago, but instead they've been frozen in place. Now, i said that this frozen world order was coming undone. It was unthawing. And that the Middle East is where the unthawing had progressed the most and we can we uh, I I guess I was more right than I knew at the time because now when we look at the Middle East it is an incredibly interesting spot on the map the dynamics of the countries there are in full motion Iran is the dominant power Israel has had the tides turned against it it is now on its back legs Egypt is rearming at an incredible pace, so that they can do something to someone, and my money is that that someone is going to be Ethiopia, Ethiopia is in a civil war right now, Yemen is kicking ass, (laughs) They're, they're bringing the fight to Saudi Arabia now, and Iran is more than happy to continue backing them, and by Yemen, I mean the Houthis, who are probably going to win the civil war in Yemen, or at the very least, they're They're going to be around for a while, and Yemen's just going to effectively be split in half. That's going to be the new political reality that people have to deal with. Um, Iran has a massive sphere of influence spanning from their borders to Lebanon and Jordan and all the way down to the Houthis, once again. Afghanistan, the civil war there is over. The civil war in Iraq is over. The civil war in Syria is coming to a close. And Turkey's making moves on the Eastern Mediterranean, they're very quietly building up their navy. After making a, an attempt last year, a more bold attempt last year to assert control, they were humiliated by the French navy, and so now they're building up their own navy. And I believe that there will be a conflict, or a great potential for conflict, over who actually controls the Eastern Mediterranean. And I think the winner's going to be Turkey. So you can you can really see that the geopolitics of the Middle East are in full motion. It's, they're not frozen at all. They just haven't had a formal war yet to officially move the borders around. It's a battle for influence. As most things usually are before you get to open hostilities. Israel and Iran might change that, but they can't really reach each other. N- well... Israel can't reach Iran directly with its troops it can with its special forces but Iran courtesy of their sphere of influence can march its militias all the way up to Israel's border if things if they came to blows they could do it so things are very much in motion in the Middle East Qatar has made a name for themselves. I call them the diplomatic capital of the Middle East because they're the ones mediating. They're the ones who are doing the banking, the financials. They're the ones who are resolving conflicts here, over there. Remember way back when that South Korean oil tanker was seized by Iran and the South Koreans sent a destroyer to go get it back? It was Qatar. Qatar. It was Qatar who de-escalated that situation. And I, I need only ask the question, what would have happened if that destroyer finished its journey before things calmed down? starts with a W and ends with an R, and it rhymes with... or. <laughs> so things are very much in motion in the Middle East. The unthawing is farthest along in the Middle East. And I said that from there and from other certain hotspots slash flashpoints around the world, think the Eastern Mediterranean, the Himalayas, the South China Sea, etc., Ukraine, the Caucasus, these frozen. Geopolitics would unfreeze from these points around the world, and they would spread outwards from these points. So, countries who are closest to these conflict zones, and the Middle East being the big one, uh, the Mediterranean, the Caucasus, uh, those are all both adjacent to the Middle East. The Himalayas are its own, is its own hotspot. The South China Sea is its own hotspot. But from these points. The world is unthawing. And with that, you have countries that are starting to behave like countries would pre-World War II. Countries are starting to behave normally, historically speaking, in these areas and spreading out from them. So, and it seems now that Europe is approaching a tipping point as its own geopolitics are starting to be set in motion again. Germany and Russia are working together, whereas all the rhetoric would say that they're enemies right now, but they work together, uh, technically against the United States, to ensure that this pipeline made it through. Germany and Russia, well, Germany has bet on Russia for its energy. Germany has bet on Russia for its energy. Now during the Cold War, that would never have happened. Never, never, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. Not even Germany and East Germany. No, just absolutely not. No. There was a literal wall. A literal wall between East Berlin and West Berlin and a fence between East Germany and West Germany. There we just wouldn't even be talking about a, a Nord Stream one, let alone a Nord Stream Two. But now we are. And not only are we talking about it, it's finished. It's it's real now. It is a new fact on the ground. Germany is is getting closer to being in motion. This is the first step towards Germany taking its own path again. Britain um, is probably just as far, if not a little bit farther along than Germany. Courtesy of Brexit. They have left the EU. They have to make their own decisions now. They're moving farther along. France, on the other hand, is actually a pretty good example of the, of my little hypothesis here uh, in that their position on the western part of Europe would suggest that they wouldn't be as far in motion as, say, even Germany. Mm. Excuse me. They, they wouldn't be as far in motion as Germany. And Britain as an island, you'd think they wouldn't be as far in motion as they are anyway, let alone uh, behind France. But because France is an active player in the Eastern Mediterranean, which is one of the hot spots we talked about, they're an active player there, so they... They're warmed up. They haven't quite unthawed, but they're more warmed up. They are further along in that unthawing process than even Britain, who is itself farther along than every other country on the continent of Europe. Britain and France, despite being farthest west, are due to circumstance farther along in this unthawing process uh, because Britain and despite they're not really involved in the middle east they're involved in afghanistan but that didn't do much uh until now things were still frozen in afghanistan now they're unfrozen in afghanistan so they weren't they were not unthawing courtesy of afghanistan they're not really involved in the rest of the middle east not to a noticeable degree but they were involved in the south china sea and they still are they sent a destroyer to crimea and they got into a they got into it with Russia, a country who was in full motion, and that's a major, major unthawing. They they came close to Ukraine, one of the hot spots, and they're unthawing. Britain, by way of where they're involved in, just like France, is further along in their unthawing process than say the Netherlands, Belgium, Spain, and Portugal. So Britain and France are unthawing. They're coming back into motion. Germany is coming back into motion. And you can look at the places where they're involved and where where they're involved and where their neighbors are not involved. You can see how that has impacted who is farthest along in getting back to normal, historic normal, where countries behave as well normal countries they behave based on their interests their actual interests not stated interests france britain germany are coming back online france and britain are furthest along france is furthest along in terms of material gain but britain isn't too far behind they have to make their own decision they're not a part of the eu anymore so they've been set in motion but they're not in full motion And Through these interactions with these hotspots and other countries who are themselves in full motion Think all the players in the Middle East plus Russia uh, And even China who is also an a main instigator The main instigator in the South China Sea so they're in full motion They're making plays to try to gain new things. They're colonizing East Africa they haven't put troops there yet, but when they do, we'll know for certain, we're, we're in the midst of the second scramble for Africa. Instead, they're building artificial islands in the South China Sea, they're aggressing against Taiwan, they're aggressing against Japan, they're aggressing against India in the Himalayas, which has set India into motion. Um, India has been much slower to come into motion, but they're they're getting there. They're starting to compete in their immediate neighborhood and that competition especially as india gets itself involved in the south china sea will further along india's process in being back into motion and what we're going to have is a very very dynamic much more dynamic global geopolitical scene when all of this when the the frozen world order comes undone completely you're gonna have this country doing this, then these countries backing up them, and then how this impacts this country is gonna make the next country do this, and then that's gonna set into a motion, a chain of events that causes country Z to invade country D. Country D didn't know what the frick was going on, and they just get, they just get stomped, and because they get stomped, now countries A through uh, F minus D, of course, A through F, now they have to make a coalition to go fight country Z country z can count on country g to defect uh because country g has this interest over here and what we have seen in our lifetimes is not the norm but we're heading back to the norm but for us it seems like uh, the the world is ending it's gonna that's gonna that's what it's gonna seem like And in a way, yes, the world order we've lived under is coming undone. The American-led world order is coming undone. It's being replaced with a more normal geopolitics where regional issues are settled by regional powers, not a grand outside superpower. Regional issues will be settled by regional powers. Different regions will have their own sets, their own list of their great powers. Uh, Europe will have its, the Middle East will have its great powers, probably the Ottomans and the Persians, maybe the Ethiopians as well. Central Asia is going to be dominated by Russia, who will itself be among both the European and Asian great powers. Asia is going to have China, Japan, India, probably maybe Pakistan, maybe Indonesia, Australia will definitely make attempts to be on the list. But you can you can it's not too difficult to see where those those regional competitions are going to be fought between. And by where, I mean who it's going to be fought between, who are the major powers. In the past, countries would carve up their sphere of influence and every now and then they'd have to fight for it. In our world order, countries would use economy, purely economy and purely politics and diplomacy to create a sphere of influence for the purposes of economy and only the United States and certain other competitors would go at it the old way where you'd use military to carve out a sphere of influence and then economy secondarily. But we're heading back to normal, where countries will use their militaries. There, there are lots of videos comparing the various militaries of the world to other ones, but that means nothing in an era where there's no wars between the great powers, and there's no wars between the minor powers either, and unless you're talking Africa, in which case it's wars between the minor, minor, the minor powers within the minor powers. It's civil wars. It's wars between tribes within the same nation. It's not country on country right now. But we're going to go back to country on country in the not too distant future. And in time, empire on empire. That's where we're heading back to. And we can see that as the world order comes undone as the freezing is unfrozen we can start to see where the where countries are sort of coming back online first the middle east is almost in full motion the south china sea is uh next is next up in line for being a place where geopolitics are in full motion especially if we're going to talk about potential conflict over taiwan That'll definitely set things in motion, full motion. Countries are going to be starting to really think about what their military is actually capable of. And should Russia annex Ukraine, well, when Russia annexes Ukraine, and it becomes very apparent that the Russians have been expanding this entire time, and that they almost have all of the Soviet Union back together, um, countries in Europe are going to really, really start to reevaluate uh, whether or not they should be pitching in uh to that nato requirement where they would can use two percent of their gdp to make sure that their army was up to par yeah countries are they're going to start reevaluating their decision not to do that and you're going to see the rearming of europe you're going to see the rearming of well you already have uh well-armed middle east and you're going to see the rearming of african nations you're going to see the a massive rearming in asia Um, and the two main competitors in their Cold War, India and China, are going to be more than happy to further this along. Japan is going to also be a major player there. Asia is going to be probably to the 21st and 22nd centuries what Europe was for the 19th and early 20th centuries. That's my estimation. Um, Things... Are heating up. They're getting very, very interesting, very, very fast. But we get to watch it, folks. And that is all I have for you today. Who? Excuse me. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast and my geopolitical podcast. We can see very clearly. That the world is changing. The frozen world order that we've lived under for the last 70 years is unfreezing. And that's going to mean a whole lot of things happening. It's going to mean a whole lot of changes. Uh, changes we do and don't like. You know? And that's, that's life. That's history. But what we, we don't know how it all ends. But what we do know is that history never ends. History is always in motion. But what we also know is that we will have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Hayshawn Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, Servus. (laughs)